verses to write down, and then we're, we're going to go into the text on this, and we've spent all our time up to this point on dating the material itself, and we assume that that's all covered and we're ready for the text. One thing I might point out that uh, the way we have studied this, and of course for a particular reason, but if you were uh, taking courses on a graduate level in college, uh, in Bible, this is the way you would study. It wouldn't be just Revelation, but Isaiah and every book, you would spend half your time, the quarter, studying the background on the book and the evidence behind it and the authenticity and the, and the various arguments on the dating and, and things of like that before you get into the text. And so we've studied it from that standpoint with Revelation, you don't really have a lot of choice because of, uh, on one hand, the figurative language, and then on the, the other hand, the fact that there has been uh, uh, various interpretations, you know, and, and that have circulated and different things that people have in their mind and some things that I personally believe are, are absolutely false. And so that's the necessitated a lot of study and background on it. Uh, you've read Revelation. I'm assuming that everybody here has read Revelation because we've had plenty of time to do that during all this time we've been getting ready for the introduction. You know that it is a highly figurative, uh, that a lot of figurative language. Uh, you can see from that that uh, how important it is on the historical setting. Uh, that, uh, uh, for example, if you um, we're in the Mideast right now, or really maybe, maybe in America or most of the parts of the world, and somebody started talking to you about the beast, uh, the savage beast in the Mideast. Who comes to your mind? Okay, you don't have to name him, do you? And, 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 you just, and, and the Kurds, I bet, have got a few good names for him that's just as bad or worse than that. But, and if you were in uh, somewhere between 1940 and 1945, and we were talking about the, the beast of Europe, nobody has any problem there, do you? Okay, Hitler. And if you were in Russia uh, right around that time or a little before, it, it may be Stalin. And, and so it is that whatever period of time, so what I'm saying there, this beast, for example, that you read about in Revelation, was no problem whatsoever to the original readers. They didn't have any problem at all with it. Uh, many of the concepts that you and I read and ponder on and dwell on, I really don't believe that the original readers had any problem whatsoever because they were living that history. They knew who was in power. They knew who was about to go to war. They knew about the famines and the earthquakes, etc. And not only this, as we pointed out, they also knew the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible. And they were familiar with all the various things that were taking place uh, at that time through the apostles. And another thing that, uh, that uh, Wallace brings out that I think is good to mention also, in fact, a number of the commentators do, uh, you're at a time when there are people in the churches with these miraculous gifts, uh, the, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of discernment, etc. The New Testament is in the process of being written, you know, uh, how much that played. Uh, in the initial interpretation and everything to these people, uh, you and I can only speculate on. So here we sit 2,000 years later, uh, reading a very highly figurative book. And so what we've done is put it in a period of history. Now, having put it in that period of history, what we're going to do is then interpret it 
in light of the events of that period. Uh, and we noted already that one of the reasons that so many scholars all through the centuries, despite anything from an external source outside the New Testament, despite, the fact, despite that, that so many of them had put Revelation in this time frame, is because it fits like a glove the events that we know took place at that time, uh, where we have Nero uh, in Rome from 54 to 68 A.D. Uh, Nero will go to his death by committing suicide. He was the first Roman persecutor of Christians and the most savage Roman persecutor of Christians. And we've already documented that there's nothing about Domitian that would even compare uh, with Nero as a persecutor uh, or as somebody that is of the uh, beastly character. And so we have Rome at this time with, with Nero on the throne. And about 64 is when the severe persecution of Christians start. And we learn that uh, Rome during that time had a burning to take place. Uh, Nero used Christians for a scapegoat and began to torture them and put them away, uh, put to death in every imaginable way. All right, at this same time now, uh, the Jews are a persecuting force against the Christians. And the Jews have, let's look at what they've done now. They've all through their history, this is something that, uh, that really it took a while to settle in my mind as I studied the Old Testament and looked at it through the years, that all through history, the majority of the Jews did not walk with God. It was always a remnant and a small percentage. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted, for you're like the prophets before you. All the prophets were persecuted. They persecuted the prophets, they killed John the Baptist, they execute their Messiah, they kill all the apostles. Uh, look at Paul before he was converted. So these people have fought the way of fleshly Israel, has fought the way of God all the way through. So they are persecuting the Christians, and then Nero gets in on the act, and he really goes at it. And so in 64, We've got the Jews, and then we've got Nero persecuting the Christians. But then something happens. The Nero, as a result of being so wicked and so terrible, there's a lot of instability within Rome. And there, there begins to be some discord and, and, and some word about nations rising up against Rome and people in Rome becoming more rebellious. In fact, it gets so bad that Nero will commit suicide in 66. In other words, obviously, he feels, that he feels his time is up. Uh, when, in 68, I should say, when he commits suicide. Well, somewhere in that 66, 67 category, Israel looked at the situation, and Christianity was getting it socked to them by Rome. The Jews had been socking it to them. Rome looked very weak at this time. And so Israel rebels against Rome. The prostitute, the harlot of Revelation, the once faithful city, now an ungodly reprobate, uh, the city that where the Lord was crucified and where so many prophets were killed and has led the persecution of so many of God's people all through the years, rebels against the beast. Revelation depicts uh, uh, Jew, the Judaism, as the woman riding the beast. And John stands in amazement at what he sees. And then, after riding the beast and after really taking its toll on God's people, the Christians, along with the beast, 
The beast has about all he can take of the woman. And so the beast turns on the prostitute, the harlot city, Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, all of these spiritual names of Israel or Jerusalem, turns on them and sends them to the downfall, destroys their city, burns up the city, destroys the temple. Out of that rubbish, now the Jerusalem destroyed, the city destroyed, Nero goes to his death, and the persecution of Christians stops uh, in the way that it's been. And out of that deathbed, and out of those ashes, arises Christianity. And Christianity will go and conquer the entire Roman world and eventually the entire world. There will be other persecutions to come, uh, but, but from out of this, Israel, our Christianity, has its birth. And this is the birth pangs. They give birth to Christianity. The kingdom comes with power. And then after that, Christianity will go and the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Father. And they will go into all the earth. And right now, of course, in every country and every continent and every language, the Bible is gone. And we have believers within the kingdom in all these particular areas. Okay, now, here are some verses to write down. We're going to notice some parallel. Write it on, uh, one, on, on one line, write the verse, and then write the parallel that we'll check. Uh, Matthew 23, 36, and 24, 34. Draw a little arrow pointing to right to the side. Revelation 1, 1, and 1, 3. And 3, 11, and 12. And 22, verses 6, 10, 12, and 20. Okay, so that's Revelation, verses 1 and verses 3, chapter 3, 11 and 12, chapter 22, 6, 10, 12 and 20, and then you've got Matthew 23, 36, and Matthew 24, 34 with an arrow pointing in that direction. Okay, the next, Matthew, right under that, put Matthew 24, 30, and an arrow pointing to Revelation 1, 7. And if I'm going too fast at any time, just stop me. Matthew 20, right under Matthew 24, 30, put Matthew 24, 21, arrow pointing to Revelation 1, 9, 3, 10, 7, 14, 2, 9, and 10. So that's Matthew 24, 21, and the arrow pointing to Revelation 1, 9, 3, 10, 7, 14, 2, 9, and 10. Okay, right under that, Matthew 23, 35 through 24, 2. Matthew 23, 35 through 24, 2. Arrow pointing to Revelation 11, 8. 18 verses 10, 21 through 24. 10 and then 21 through 24. Again, that's Matthew 23, verses 35 through 24, 2, and then the arrow pointing to Revelation 11, 8, and then Revelation 18, verses 10, and then verses 21 through 24. Okay, right under that, Matthew 24, 16 through 21, arrow pointing, Revelation 12, 6.
And then in Matthew 24, 7 through 8, that's right under Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 7 through 8, arrow pointing, Revelation 18, 8. Right under that, Matthew 24, 31, arrow pointing, Revelation 11, 15. And then right under that, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and then arrow pointing, Revelation 19, 1 through 10. Okay, now right under all of that, write the temple standing, Revelation 16, 15. Temple still standing, Revelation 16, 15. And then under that, a reference, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, page 215. We'll get to that in a Temple still standing, Revelation 16, 15. And then under that, evidence that demands a verdict, page 215. Is that volume one? Yeah, volume one. Yeah, and by the way, there's there's been several editions of it, and I'll need to check that because I notice I've got, this is the second edition, and I've read three, and I checked this out. I know when I checked this from when I'd done this before, it wasn't in the first edition, it was in the second, so this would be the, the second edition of it. I think after the second edition, what they did is they just kept that the same in the first book. It may be. It's book. a smaller, they condensed it, made it in the same material, but they made a smaller print. Yeah. So it would be in the first one, but on a different page. Okay, uh, now, uh, the Jews still a force against uh, Revelation 2, 9, and 10, and Revelation 3, 9, and 10. And then uh, the Jews still against Revelation 2, 9, and 10, and Revelation 3, 9, and 10. Jews still against? Uh huh. Still a force against Christians. Okay. Two, nine, and ten, and what? Uh -huh. And three, nine, and ten. In other words, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews were never a force against Christianity. And when Revelation is written, they were. And then the true Jew has always been. Romans 8 28 and following, and John 8 39 through 49. Romans 8 28 following. And then John 8, 39 through 49, the true Jew. Say that again. Uh, All right. The Jew is still a force against Revelation 2, 9, and 10, and Revelation 3, 9, and 10. The true Jew, Romans 2, 28 and following. I just got 2, 28 and dash. And then John 8, 39 through 49. Is that 2, 28 or 8, 28? Yeah, this. 8, 28. 228. Oh, 228. 228 and following. Change it. Romans 2. Romans 2, 28 and following. What's the charge you mean? And I said John 8, 39 through 49. <laughs> okay. Okay, now, now, in Revelation now, the introduction, chapters 1 through 3, introduction, chapters 1 through 3, and, you, and when you read it and you'll see it, it'll fall in introduction, chapters 1 through 3, 
And then we have two series of visions. Chapters 4 through 11 is a series of vision, and it culminates in chapter 11. And chapters 12 through 19 is a series of visions, and it'll culminate. In uh, chapter 11, those series of visions will culminate in the great city where the Lord was crucified, and it will, which is being spiritually identified with these terms. In chapter 12 through 19, that series of visions will culminate in the destruction and downfall of Babylon that had been responsible for the death of so many Christians. Now, so far as the two series of visions, and yet I'm saying that each series of vision is talking about the downfall of, of Jerusalem and, and Israel. And yet, and yet it's two different, two, one whole series, and then it repeats it, another series, just using different figurative language. The biblical pattern used among the Jews, whenever something was certain, and it was for sure, and God wanted to make it clear, the vision would be repeated twice in two different ways. And there's no better example than Genesis 41. And you can have Genesis 41 and verse 25 and verse 32. Remember, Pharaoh saw two visions. One, the cows come up. Yeah. And, then the, and then after that, it was the ears of corn. And then he said the two visions are one and that God has given it in two different ways because he wants to uh, make it certain to you that these things will come to pass. Uh, you read in the New Testament, truly, truly, repeating it. Uh, again, Hebrewism, you're emphasizing that something is going to come to pass. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so you say it twice. And in this way, the visions said in uh, two different ways. Daniel, you have several series of visions that are saying exactly the same thing. They just say it in different ways, but several series of visions that say the same thing in different ways. When you're talking about um, the culmination in chapter 19, though, uh -huh. well, how was that that you described that? Uh, 19 ends with the fall of Babylon and vengeance taken and its hour had come and it was destroyed. And then we're going to go into the saints reigning and all after that. Okay. And in the 11th chapter, it ended also at the the great city where the Lord was crucified and, and then the vengeance that was taken. Really the so, same thing, then it's just describing it in different uh -huh. okay. Just uh, you've got a series of visions and a downfall, a series of visions and a downfall. Each time the downfall comes on the force that has been taking the lives of so many Christians and has been responsible for the blood of so many of God's martyrs all through the centuries. And then uh, out of all of that, we will then come into the latter part of Revelation where we have this kingdom that is going to go into all the world. Uh, it will be made clear that, that it's not going to be just a bed of roses, that there's more persecutions to follow, that uh, you know Satan isn't through the adversary. And, and when, when uh, Satan is used uh, in Revelation, uh, I'm, remember the word itself simply means adversary. Uh, from the writer's standpoint, and this is true with the Bible, any force on earth that sets itself up as an adversary to the will of God would be used in the term Satan, Satan personified. Uh, uh, Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. 
because he said, you're thinking like men or the adversary and not like God. When Judas betrayed him, it said Satan entered into his heart. Well, there was nothing mystical that made Judas betray him. Uh, Judas made the decision to become an adversary. And so when it says the devil goes about like a roaring lion, whatever the adversary is, it's not some mystical force in the sky that causes people to do bad, but whatever the adversary is, it's trying to lead Christians astray. And so when Peter wrote that statement, the devil goes about like a roaring lion, Nero is on the throne killing Christians. And, 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 and just to confess the name of Christ could cost you your life. And so that he was warning them, the, ad, the adversary is like a roaring lion, and he's ready to devour you and eat you up, be on, your, be on your guard. And so you could use the same type of language again, and that it was, it's never in the sense of some uh, literal devil that's coming down and uh, making you do bad, but it's, it's the forces that are arrayed against God or, or whatever temptations uh, that may be out there. Okay. Uh, what you're saying is that you think both of these have reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, but in the, the first vision is, is calling it Sodom and Gomorrah, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah, uh-huh. where the Lord was crucified, though, right. which identifies as being Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right. But then in the second series of visions, it's identified as Babylon. Right. But, and so it and judgment, and we'll see that'd be no problem there. It'd be the same thing. And to, to refer to people, and keep in mind, what does Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt and Babylon all have in common? Okay, God passed judgment on every one of them. All of them were wicked forces that God passed judgment on. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah, on several occasions, speaking to the people of Israel, you people of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, Jeremiah refers and uses the term Babylon in the 51st chapter of Jeremiah but it was not unusual at all to call the people of God by some wicked force that God had passed judgment on and in the same thing when, uh, when you have uh, the term Satan used it's the same way I'm not saying that there's not a literal Satan I believe there is a literal Satan but then just then the Satan, so far as this earth is concerned, is anybody uh, that takes upon himself to be the adversary of God. And that, in fact, that's all the word means, is the, the adversary. Okay, now, those passages, the first one we won't turn to because we've already spent so much time on. And then we'll drop down. In Matthew 23, 36, 24, 34, Uh, That's in both times, Jesus told them that this calamity, this judgment that was coming on the Jewish people uh, would come in their generation. Uh, And then in uh, all the way through the New Testament, we've already documented that this judgment that's coming is, is near at hand. And then in Revelation, in those passages there, this judgment situation is something that is imminent, not only, not only is it is going to quickly unfold, it's soon to come and it's quickly to unfold. And you can see that uh, when John writes that he's not talking about something that's going to start 2,000 years and quickly unfold, John refers to himself as a fellow partaker in their suffering who's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And he's writing to them and he's saying, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And he's talking to them about things that were happening at that time and he wants them to watch and be alert. So the judgment situation over here, it's going to come past in your generation. 
a generation has passed. And now here we are uh, getting pushing 70 AD, a generation has passed, and it's something that is near at hand. It's quickly about to unfold this judgment situation. Now, look at Revelation 1-7. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Okay? Now, flip over to Matthew 24-30. In fact, you might just want to keep your finger in both places there as we go through here. Twenty-four, thirty. Barbara, you want to read that, please? Of Matthew. Okay, now notice again. Let me read this, and then she'll read that. In, in 1 and 7, Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. Okay. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, so the nations to be aware, the earth to, to mourn, the Son of Man appearing in the sky, he's coming in the clouds. And of course, we've already documented beyond any doubt in Matthew 24 that we're talking about Jerusalem there, right? No question. We've already documented it here in uh, Revelation. This is the way he's referred to this. He's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Who put him to death? Okay, in fact, look at that. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And hold your place and flip over here to Matthew 26. While you're in Matthew, look at Matthew 26. And beginning with verse uh, 62. Uh, Uh, read that, uh, let's see, Louise, would you, 62 through 65? Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? Why is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus. Jesus replied, But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Okay. Look at this statement here. They're about ready, they're condemning Jesus. You've got the high priest standing there. Uh, notice they're aware of what he said. Look at, back up to verse 61. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're arguing about that. And the high priest stands up and, and con condemns him there. And look at verse 67. They spit in his face. They're going to beat him and mock him. They've condemned him of blasphemy. Uh, his comment, I say to you, verse 64, in the future, you, speaking to these people that were doing that, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so over here, uh, the statement paralleled with Matthew 24:30 on the destruction of Jerusalem, he will come with the clouds. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. Again, it's aimed at those who specifically killed him. 
And they were, they were the ones that killed him. Okay, now look at Matthew 24, 21. Twenty-four and verse uh, twenty-one. Uh, Jack, would you read that, please? Well, then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equal again. Okay, and look over here in Revelation one and verse nine. <clears throat> I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours on the Isle of Patmos because of the, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, they're suffering there. They're being persecuted because of the uh, testimony of Jesus. And now continue, let's see, right on with uh, 3 and 10 and 7 and 14, all in this same context, 3 and 10 of Revelation. Since you have kept my command and endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. So there's this hour of trial that was coming uh, in 7 and 14 uh, during the vision itself. I answered and he said, Sir, you know, these are they that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes of this great tribulation, this hour of trial, but there was going to be those that were delivered from it. Okay, and then let's see that what was the the next verse there, two uh, nine and ten. Okay, look at let's see verses nine and ten. Uh, Sandy, would you read that please? I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right, a good example, by the way, on the devil there. Obviously, the literal devil wasn't going to come down and put anybody in jail. But some of them were, were going to go to jail, and the, the devil given credit for it. Again... What we're seeing is that this judgment, when he refers to the judgment of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, he, he refers to it as this great tribulation, this great distress. I'm saying that all through Revelation, you have these, this great tribulation, this great distress, and there's going to be severe persecution. There's going to be people go to their death, but yet they're admonished to be thou faithful unto death. Okay, now look at Matthew 24. Or I should say, let's look at 23, the next one down, 23 and 35 through 24, 2. Uh, Mark, would you read that place, Matthew 23, and verses 35 through 24, 2. Uh -huh. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down. Okay, now in this, who is judgment being passed on there? Okay, and it's supposed to happen when? Generation. Okay, for that generation, and why is judgment being passed on Jerusalem? Okay, and they have uh, killed, the prophets. killed the prophets, and look at verse 35, upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from Abel in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the way they arranged the books, Abel, like in our Old Testament, was the first righteous man to be killed Zechariah was the last. In other words, that they arrange their books a little bit different than we do, and Zechariah is historically in the old Bible, from the Jewish standpoint, the last righteous person to be killed. And of course, they was using the Greek, the Greek Septuagint. And so, all of these righteous people, he said, it's, it's going to be required on this generation, and so it's for killing those people. Okay, now, look over here to Revelation 11 as we culminate the first uh, series of visions. Okay, look at verses, uh, Mark, you want to read that verses, uh, verse 8, just look at, well, 11 and 2 and then verse 8. We'll come back to more in that, but read verses 11, 1, and chapter 11, 1 and 2 and then verse 8. Okay, 11 and 1. I was given a read like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And in verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Okay. The bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So this great uh, city that is going to go to its downfall, and also where righteous people are being killed, figuratively called this, but it's a city where the Lord is crucified. All right, now... In uh, turn over to 1810 and 21 through 24 of Revelation. Okay, you can see in 18 and verse uh, 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then look at verse uh, 10, terrified at the moment they will stand, woe, woe, the great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour, doom has come. Okay, now, look at this same chapter. What are we talking about here in verse 21 through 24? Uh, let's see, 21 through... What's your first name again? Carol. Carol. Oh, I forgot. I went blank on me. 
21 through 24, Carol. <clears throat> the mighty angel took up a stone like a, like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence a great city, Babylon, shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeteers shall not be heard in you anymore. And no more craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the true sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. And the light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcerer all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Okay, notice the parallel again with Matthew 23 that the judgment on Jerusalem and, and it was going to be required of her all the righteous blood that had been slain on this earth. And now after it talks about the downfall of Babylon, judgment, notice, look up verse 20 of chapter 18. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. So Babylon is being judged for the way she treated the saints, the apostles, and the prophets. And the great city Babylon, and then in verse 24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been killed on earth. And parallel that with what we just read in Matthew 23, where Jesus condemned them so strongly and said the blood of all the righteous that have been slain would be required on them and at that, uh, at that generation. Okay, now, uh, in Matthew uh, 24, 16 through 21. Uh, Christy, would you read that, please? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Okay, when this great tribulation comes, what is he in essence telling the disciples to do? Yeah. Get out. Run. That's what he's done. When you see it coming... You get out, you run. Okay, now look over here to Revelation 12 and 6. Here we have the woman and the dragon. And then notice what happens here in verse uh, uh, 6. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1,260 days, 42 months. If you're going to take literal all three and a half years. By the way, the war, with the war with Rome was about three and a half years or 42 months. But now in this persecuting force here where the dragon is persecuting the woman here, uh, we have the, the people of God fleeing and God has prepared a place for them. Well, Jesus, when he talks about the destruction, he said, here are the signs. Whenever you see these things come to pass, don't even come into the city. If you're up on the rooftop, don't even come down and get your cloak. Get out of that place. 
run. These are the days of vengeance. And so here again, God's people are going to run. They're going to flee. And the end result is, he said, God has prepared a place. So judgment is coming on this place. But God's people are going to get out. Here, I thought uh, from the historical source, both Eusebius and also Josephus uh, record the, the battle and the destruction of Jerusalem. And both of them also record how that the Christians got out and were unaffected. The first one I'm reading from is Josephus. Uh, Josephus was an eyewitness of the siege in Jerusalem. Okay, remember he started off as a general in the Jewish army. And the events preceding it, in Wars, Book 3, Section 3, Page 3. That's Wars, Book 3, Section 3, Page 3. And by the way, any of this you want to get, you can get afterwards. Now I've got the works of Josephus downstairs. He relates that after the armies of Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, had besieged Jerusalem, they withdrew. And in this interval, the disciples fled according to the Lord's admonition. The historian Josephus was an unbeliever and admitted his inability to account for the cessation, but declared it nevertheless a fact. All who believe the statements of the Lord in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, know and understand why it was the Lord's doing. So what he's saying is, when they besieged the city, there was a cessation that was called. Nobody knows why. Of course, there was a reason. Josephus just telling him he doesn't know why. During that period of time, the Christians left the city. Remember in Luke 21, he says, when you see the Roman army surround the city, know that his desolation is nigh. Get out of here. Okay, now, an, a later historian, Eusebius. Just a second, Paul. Let me. Okay. I've got this uh, Paul Wallace's book, and uh -huh. he quotes, he gives the wrong reference in Josephus there. He gives the wrong one? Okay. It's actually book two, chapter 19, paragraph six and seven. I, I okay. It, I looked it up, and it was. Where's my I pencil? I couldn't find it. And so. Book two. Book two. Okay, thanks, Mark. Chapter 19, paragraph six and seven. Chapter 19. Paragraph six and seven. I looked. At, I just he read, found it. Reference. Seven. But well, I tell you what. You know what he might have done though too. Uh, I'm curious on this, Martin. We'll check. There are several different works by Josephus. Like I've got it in two completely different sections. One's a four volume, okay. and one is a one. Mm -hmm. And there, that might account for some, just like on this page that I gave here. But I don't know. We'll okay. check. We'll check on it's that. In Wars, Book Three. But I think what it is, there's something else that's referenced there, and he just picked up the wrong reference. Okay. Okay, but anyway, that was from Josephus on that. Now, this is uh, uh, the later historian Eusebius. How do you spell that? E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. Okay. His history bears the date of 324 A.D. He states in Book 3, Section 3, I've also got Eusebius downstairs, states in Book 3, Section 3, Page 3, that the church in Jerusalem, by divine revelation, fled to the mountain country of Pella, beyond the Jordan, which, according to Josephus, was largely a desert mountain region. Okay, so Josephus records the cessation, the Christians getting out. Uh, Eusebius, from the materials that he had in 324, recorded that the Christians fled to Pella. 
Uh, I've got a paper in my briefcase. Uh, I think it's in my briefcase now. But anyway, uh, Jason Locke, everybody remember Jason? Uh, Jason is part of his graduate work in uh, Abilene Christian College, did a research paper on the apocalyptic writing within Luke and submitted it. In fact, he got an A on the, a on the paper. And anyway, his conclusion after doing the paper was that all of the apocalyptic material in Luke applied to the, the war with uh, Rome and Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. And in that also, as part of his paper, he deals with the historical information relative to the Christians fleeing and going to a Pelham, Pel place called Pella at that period in time. So again, what we're saying is that Jesus, we remember we said that in Thessalonians, like when it talks about the uh, the Lord's coming as a thief in the night, and you know, won't, don't know the day and all. But we know that if you read the whole context, uh, it makes a statement in 1 Thessalonians 5 that it will not come to you like a thief in the night, but it'll be for the unbelievers. But, but he made it clear that you have these signs and you'll be able to get out. So for the Jews who didn't believe, it was like a thief in the night. They thought things were going good and it would go to their destruction. But to the Christians, they would get out. So Jesus gave them the signs, they get out. Well, all I'm saying in this, in Revelation, uh, we have this series uh, of visions where we have a persecuting force and it culminates in this city where the Lord was crucified. Then we have another series that's going to culminate in chapter 19. And in that series, we have judgment on this city again, a figurative term, Babylon, being used. But it's a place where the Lord's people have been killed. All the saints' blood has been shed. And we see in the process of this series, in the 12th chapter, the 6th verse, that while the, the persecuting force against the Christians was themselves being attacked by this beast or dragon, that God's people fled and escaped the process. And it refers to it as a place prepared by God. Well, the way it was prepared is they simply had the signs, and when they encompassed the city and they lifted the siege for a period of time, the Christians simply took it and got out. And so literally thousands upon thousands of Jews died, but no believers died so, in the city. So Rome surrounded the city, but then they let people out for a time. Well, what, well they lifted the siege. Well, what, Sestus Gallus was the one that surrounded it the first time, and Josephus says that he could have took the city with no problem, the people were ready to, to surrender to him, but that for some reason, he says for no reason in the world, Cessus Gallus thought that he didn't have a big enough army, so he just lifted the siege and left. He just left? Yeah, and Josephus says that if he knew what the people were, were saying inside the city, he would have just marched in and the people would have opened the door, flung the doors open and let him walk in, but he didn't know that, and so he left. And then during that period of time, the Christians were... It's were amazing given. when you read what Josephus says about that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting in reading Josephus, when you read Matthew 24 and all that material, you just can't miss it, can you? Mm -hmm. And, and you've got to keep in mind, Josephus is a Jew who never became a Christian. He's just, and he writes as a, as a historian. Uh, the only thing that I've read that is, parallels it in being amazing is, is when the the uh, Babylonians uh, were defeated by Medo-Persia and fulfilled all of that prophecy. And then to go back and read the historical record that's there uh, from the Babylonians and, and the Medo-Persians 
and to see how perfectly that parallels what had been written by the Jewish prophets. Okay, um, that was, uh, let's see, uh, where was we down to? Revelation 12, 6. Okay, Matthew 24, 7, and 8. Okay, Tim, you want to read that, please? For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay, now back over here in Revelation 18. Okay, therefore in one day the plagues will overtake her, death and mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Again, the same type of language, the same situation, the same reference to famine, etc. Okay, in Matthew 24, 31. Uh, John, would you read that, please? 24, 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, now notice this is after the judgment on the city of Jerusalem, okay? The judgment has taken place, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Okay, now look at this over here in uh, Revelation 11, 15, uh, after that judgment situation, the first series. Okay. Uh, John, would you read that, please? Eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world hath become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Okay, notice again. Over here, the trumpet of the angel, and then he gathers his elect from four winds under heaven in Matthew 24. Over here, after we culminate this first series, the angel sounds his trumpet, and then instead of the word over there, he'll gather his elect from the four winds of the heaven. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. What will happen is that after this big event, Christianity will go out vindicated uh, into the entire world. In other words, the gathering of the elect was simply the preaching of the gospel and the thousands upon thousands of people that would respond to it as God's kingdom spread here on this earth. Okay, now turn to Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Okay, now I think we've looked at uh, this before on there. Who are we? Uh, Annette? And that's okay. Huh? I don't read loud. <laughs> okay. You need to read loud. Well, she don't feel comfortable. You want to or you want me to pass on your mom? No. Okay. 22. Um, I thought Annette and Charity were going to fight for a chance to read there. Huh? <laughs> okay. 20, Barbara, read that 22, 1 through 14. 
Matthew. Uh-huh. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding ban- banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Oh, okay. What what verse did you finish on? 10. Now read on through 14. But when the king came and in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Okay, now look at the parable there. The kingdom of heaven is like a king. Okay? Prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Obviously here you've got uh, uh, God the Father uh, prepared a banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet, tell them to come in. Uh, they go ahead, they, they invite them in, but they pay no attention to them. And they seize the, ser- seize the servants, they mistreat them. Uh, the king was enraged. Okay, they, in fact, it says the, they seized the service, mistreated them, and killed them. Then it says the king was enraged. He sent his army, destroyed those murderers, burned their city. Okay, then he sends his servants out and said the wedding is ready. They go into the street corners all over and began to invite everybody in to the, to the wedding. So we have a wedding offered by the king to his people. They refuse, mistreat, beat, and kill. The king is angered. He burns the city. And now the invitation goes out, and many will come in. And then, of course, the parable goes on down that there's the, this, this some from this first apparently wanted in, and it was too late. There would be weeping. In other words, once, uh, once they were sealed in that city, that was too late. Weeping and wailing and, and gnashing of teeth. Now come over here to look at uh, the 19th chapter of Revelation as he has culminated here with the fall of Babylon in uh, the 18th chapter. And then look at that, Revelation 19, uh, 1 through 10. Okay, uh, Louise? Uh, pardon me, flip that light on behind you. I've just got thinking it was no dark. No, that. no, that over. Right. Yeah, that's better. One through ten. Uh huh. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, 
But here we just are here. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a, then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great, small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the rush, roar of rushing, rushing water, and like peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding in the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do not do it. I am a fellow ser servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay. So notice in the, you have the uh, persecutors and the killers of God's people, uh, and judgment is passed on them. Uh, in verse, uh, latter part of verse 2, he avenged the blood of his servants on them. But then after that, you have the wedding feast and the marriage of the, of the Lamb of God with his bride, which is really the, the people of God that are, that are worshiping God and are, are obeying God. Uh, an exact parallel with the statement with the Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Again, uh, uh, the call goes out. Uh, it's refused. Uh, people of God are killed, judgment takes place, and a wedding feast where everybody is called in. And the same thing over here in Revelation, uh, the call goes out, refused, God's people is, is killed, judgment on that place, and then the wedding feast and God's people married, married to the Lamb and identified as the, as the people of God at that point. Okay, now... Well, look at Revelation 16, 15. And let's see, let me get this evidence that demands a verdict here. Um, so. Revelation 16 and verse uh, 15. Uh, Jack, would you read that, please? Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not get go naked and be shamefully exposed. Okay. I always wondered, you know, obviously he's alerting his people to be on the alert. And if they're not on the alert, you know, that they're going to be shamefully exposed. And remember after the talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, then Jesus launched into a series of statements over in Matthew about being on the alert. He talks about the wise and the foolish virgins, etc. But all of it was to be alert, be on the watch, that in order to escape, they literally were going to have to watch and be on the alert and believe the Lord and then be, do exactly what he said. And that was going to be their, their escape. Well, in this passage here, in verse 15, it says, I come like a thief, blessed he who sets awake, keeps his clothes with him, 
so that he may not go naked and shamefully exposed. Uh, and evidence demands a verdict. Uh, he's quoting from Alfred Edersheim, and I've got Edersheim's book on the life and times of the Messiah. Uh, Alfred Edersheim gives us this description of the tight discipline under which the temple police worked. During the night, the captain of the temple made his rounds. On his approach, that the guards had to rise and salute him in a particular matter. Any guard found asleep when on duty was beaten, and his garments were set on fire, a punishment, as we know, actually awarded, hence the admonition to us, as it were, the temple guard, blessed is he that watches and keepeth his garments. And he refers to Revelation 16 and 15. In other words, this, this, uh, this admonition, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, this was a common admonition at that time that when the guards were on duty in the temple, what they, the way they were punished when they were checked, and by the way, anybody here that's ever been in the military, and I don't guess anybody here has except me, it is a cardinal sin in the military to go to sleep on duty. I mean, it's, in wartime, it's the death penalty. You don't, you don't go to sleep on duty uh, in the military during a wartime situation because people can lose their life as a result of it. And what they used to do, even with us in boot camp, we had, um, as part of our training at Paris Island, they'd wake you up any number of times in the middle of the night, and then you had guard duty to do for a couple of hours in the night, and then you come and woke somebody else up, and they had guard duty. And you, so then every night, there's always somebody on guard duty. Of course, they were treating us like it was a war situation. So the military never just sleeps. You've always got somebody on duty. But... If a drill instructor came around checking and anybody was asleep, they literally beat the fire at them. Didn't too many people go to sleep. But I mean, that was it. And so if, if some guy was puffy-eyed and beat up the next day, you know what had happened. That, uh, and, and the reason, now that I remember, that, that sounds terrible, but keep in mind, if, you, if, you're, if you're in a war situation, and, and you're, you know, you can imagine how difficult it is to get sleep. And those guys, if you'll remember when they, when they went in in the Gulf War, that some of those people, when they first went in, were up 24 and 36 hours in a row. Well, then when you lay down for some shut-eye, you can imagine the anxiety that you feel. You've got to be absolutely confident that the people that are on guard, and it's their watch, that they're going to go to wake, and they're going to be awake, and they're not going to go to sleep. And they need to feel the same way when you're on guard. Well, that's, that's been the policy with the military all through the centuries, you know. Well, with the temple guard, see, that what they were on guard for, no unholy person could come into that area. No Gentile could come in. He could come in only at the expense of his life. And so that when they went around, and the Jewish method of punishing them is that when they went around, if this guard, they, if he didn't stand up and salute and make the proper response, they beat him up, and they stripped his clothes off of him, and they burned his clothes up. And so here he comes running out of the temple naked and beaten up. And then everybody knows what has happened. So then there arose as a result of that, look at the statement there, Behold, I come like a thief, blessed is he who stands awake, and he who keeps his clothes with him, that he may not go naked and shamefully exposed. Every Jew knew exactly what he was talking about on that particular time. All right, now the point being, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., uh, by the time you hit 96, you've come 26 years. There's no temple guard. Uh, you've got a whole generation that's come up and they don't even know what you're talking about. And even then, to anybody that did, it's, it's something past. 
But at the time that Revelation is written, this was a viable phrase that was in used among them. Be on guard so that you can, don't be like the person that loses his clothes and is, and is put to shame. And so it's just one of the evidences showing that the temple itself was still standing at the time that it was written. Okay, now flip over here to 2, 9 and 10. Okay, uh, where did we get up to anyway on, on the reading? To Sandy. Sandy, okay. You're in Revelation, right? Yeah. Okay. I know your afflictions and your... That's what I read last time. <laughs> I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say... They are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what they are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so I know your affliction, your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander, and so these people are being afflicted. They're being slandered. They're being slandered by people who say they're Jews, but they're not. Was there any Gentile going to say he was a Jew? By the way, Jew is a, was like nigger to the Gentile. Uh, they, that was it. See, the Jews got the name because they were from Judah. And so as a means of slang, the Gentiles started calling them Jews. And then eventually they accepted it as a name, but that's how it got started. No Gentile, the Gentiles looked down on the Jews. They weren't going to say. Of course, there were some proselytes, I guess. Oh, yeah, but they were Jews. They, they were, they were, they Jews. yeah, they became Jews. I'm saying that there's no Gentile that is going to go around and want people to know that he's a Jew. That they look down. There's no Gentile, no Roman citizen wanted to walk around and say, I'm a Jew. That, uh, who say that they are Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So again, I'm saying that, that the time that this is written, the Jews were still a persecuting force, and they were in the process of about to suffer at this time. Now look at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Okay, Mark. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Okay, and then I am coming soon. You know, hold on. Okay, look at the statement now. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars. I'm going to make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Now, how would this happen? 
I mean, you think about it, that uh, these people, they're persecuting the Christians, they're slandering them. He said they claim to be, but they're really not. They're liars. I'll make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge when all of these prophecies that Jesus has uttered comes fulfilled and Judaism goes down and their temple is destroyed, then they will, have, then they will in a sense, have fell at their feet and there will be the acknowledgement that all of those things that they said were false were true. The temple was destroyed and Jerusalem did fall. All right, now, in the, in the use of the term Jew, and they're referring to themselves as a Jew, look over at Romans 2.28. One among several. Uh, Carol, would you read that, please, starting with Romans 2.28 and 29. Okay, Romans 2.28. And even as they did not like to retain God, no, no, are we, yeah, Romans 2. 28. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Still in one. Okay. Okay. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is he that circumcision which is outwardly in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, now notice again the way Paul is using the term uh, the Jew is this person that is right with God. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. and But he is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcised in his heart. And so over here he's saying these people claim to be Jews, but really they're not. Uh, they're of the synagogue of Satan. They're not the people of God. Uh, over here in John the 8th chapter, Similar thing by Jesus. Uh, John 8 and verse 39 to 49. Christy, would you read that, please? They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, 
I do not have a demon, but I honor, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Okay. Uh, I point this out because we got the same author. And John writing this and also Revelation. And notice John is privy to this discourse between Jesus and the Jews. And they're claiming to be the people of God. They're saying, Abraham is our father. God is our father. And Jesus is, and John's there. And he says, you're a bunch of liars. He said, Abraham is not your father. Well, see, in the flesh he was. But in the spirit, he wasn't. He said, if Abraham is your father, you'd act like Abraham does. He wasn't your father. And he says, God's not your father. Who does he say their father is? He says, your father's the devil. Why is he your father? Because you're acting like him. Uh, in the same way that when Satan entered Judas, he was acting like Satan. So that's the reason the, the phrase is given there. In the same vein, I'm saying that John listened to this discussion by Jesus He's heard Jesus tell the Jews that your father is the devil, your father is not God, your, your father is not Abraham, and make it very clear that the people of God were sold because of their heart, not because of the flesh, a fleshly circumcision, or any other fleshly claim. Paul picks up on this in the Roman letter that the true Jew is not one that's just been simply physically circumcised. Uh, Paul in Galatians refers to the fact that it was no big deal that they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. He said the true seed of Abraham are those that have faith like Abraham had. All right, go back before that to John the Baptist. And he said, you brood of vipers, uh, God could raise up children to Abraham from the rocks out here. So I'm saying it's a pattern all the way through in the teaching of Christ and under the apostles that to refer to these people who were fleshly Jews as liars, and children of the devil uh, because of the way that they were acting and to make it clear the true people of God were so inwardly. And so John, using that same line of thinking, says these people claim to be Jews. Well, why were they claiming to be Jews? Because they were Jews, fleshly. They were the seed of Abraham. They had been circumcised. Uh, they had the synagogue. They had the law. They claimed to serve God. So he said, he says, your synagogue is really a synagogue of Satan. And although you claim to be Jews, you're liars. That's not so. And, and so he says, you're about to suffer these things, but even though you're going to suffer, God is going to make known to them that you are really his people, and they will bow down at your feet. So God will pass judgment on them, and he will make known to them that you're at your feet. But again, the emphasis there, there's several things. The biggest point that I'm making is that when John writes this in Revelation uh, he's using terminology being used in the New Testament relative to fleshly Israel, but he's also writing at a time where the Jews were a slandering and persecuting force against the Christian. And then as we've seen in Revelation 16, 15, the indication there that the temple was something that was standard, and this was a common slogan that was said among them concerning the burning of the clothes. Okay, now, on any of that that we've... Uh, covered the passages or anything like that anybody with any comments or or observations can I ask a question about Josephus um did he did he defect what did he do okay when uh they started the war Josephus was very well educated and he was actually a young man when the war started, but he winds up a general because of his education, really, well, very well educated. And so the war starts, and he starts off as a general. Well, he's defeated. 
And see, we think of the destruction of Jerusalem, but what really happened, the Roman armies come in and conquered all these cities in Judah and around you. And what happened, every time they'd defeat a city, the people would leave and flee and flee towards Jerusalem. Okay? Josephus had already been defeated. In fact, he was in one situation, and this is where he wound up with Rome. He and some others had made a pact that they would take their lives. Okay, they were going to commit suicide because they were going to be captured by Rome. Well, the others took their life, and they got down to the last two, and Josephus chickened out. And so he saw the folly of this. So he finally made the decision to surrender. So he goes ahead and surrenders and, to, to, uh, and winds up in the Roman house of Flavius. And that's how he came up with the name Flavius Josephus. Flavius is a Roman name. Right. After he surrendered to Rome, now keep in mind that he's been a general and, and now he goes to his defeat and he surrenders to Rome. Well, the Jews from this point on were disgusted with him. They looked at him as an apostate and, and somebody that had cowardly chicken out and all. Well, Josephus is still a devout Jew, but Josephus is very intelligent, and he's looked at this situation, and he saw that the Jews cannot win, that, that they're going just on their zeal, but they cannot win. And as uh, Mark pointed out, he knew that the city couldn't stand. And Josephus actually wanted uh, them, in fact, uh, uh, Titus tried to use Josephus to try and persuade them to surrender because Titus didn't really want to go and kill them. You know, that the Romans at first did not want to annihilate the Jews. Uh, the Jews' own rebelliousness and obstinacy of heart and all brought it about, but they didn't want to do it. And so anyway, Josephus then tries to persuade them he's unsuccessful. And so he winds up a servant. Well, because of his education, he winds up in a pretty high position. And then what caused them to have so much confidence in him? When Josephus saw what was happening, and then he saw Vespasian come in and take over. Uh, you, we had uh, Nero that goes to his death. And then we have, within a year and a half, we have three Roman emperors. And things are real, real unstable. And then finally, in 69, Vespasian becomes emperor. Well, when he becomes emperor, Josephus comes to the conclusion that Vespasius is the Messiah because it, he sees that he, he, the, from, he sees the temple and the city is going to be destroyed. Vespasian is going to come out on top. And so Josephus, thinking of the prophecies and the statements in the past, he thinks that this man has to be the Messiah. So anyway, Even he became... Vespasian is not a Jew. Mm -hmm. He still, he, he thought, still he, thought he, must, he must be the Messiah. And so anyway, that, but see, he's trying, what he's trying to do is go back and reinterpret because his whole world has fell apart. And so he said, this guy has to be the, the Messiah to come. And so anyway, the result is he, he is very well accepted by Rome because of he, he just goes ahead and pays homage uh, you know, to Messiah and to Rome, and all, to Vespasian and to Rome. Well, he winds up a historian uh, in the Roman court. And then Josephus writes his histories of the Jews and wars of the Jews. Really, for the most part, it's very favorable towards the Jews. He's trying to make them look good to Rome. He still feels for his people. But he, is, he, he wound up in a situation where he didn't become a Christian. The Jews never respected him. He died a disrespected man. Only, only he had, if he had anything, he had it with Rome. But he was never quite 100% 
So he winds up somewhat of a lonely uh, individual. That he, in other words, he played politics to save his life, but in the process, it cost him his relationship with Israel. And then he now, under the protection of Rome and with his education, he goes back and writes the history of the Jewish people. And of course, he was involved in this with Jerusalem, and so he writes extensively. On, and most of what we know on the fall of Jerusalem and all the events that take place is through the writings of Josephus. But he's such a good witness for us as Christians in this particular area because he is a prejudiced Jew who is literally showing the perfect fulfillment of what the Lord said in the temple and all these, in all these areas. Now there's some areas where Christians have quoted Josephus as having made positive statements about Jesus, but I really believe personally that, that it's not accurate to use it. I think he made a few statements, but I believe the evidence is that Christian interpolators uh, have tampered with his writing in that I think there's pretty strong evidence there, so I believe it comes across as weak for Christians to use that in evidence. And you'll see, now the other one, Eusebius, that I mentioned that historian was a uh, fourth century uh, Christian and, and he writes a history going back into the first century, but he writes also from a multitude of documents that we really don't even have access to today, some of which we just have parts, but he writes from a lot of documents that we really don't have access to. All right, next. Uh, the next week, we'll look at uh, specific chapters, such as the 20th chapter. Uh, we've looked at the 18th, the 17th chapter, and the 13th chapter. So if you want to read that, uh, the 17th, 13th, and 20th chapter, and we'll look specifically at it, uh, the Roman emperors, the beast, etc., uh, and then we'll uh, finish up. Uh, next week also. I think we can go ahead and finish up with the summation. Now or next week? Uh, should be next week. We're not... Uh, we'll be here next week. Yeah, yeah. next week. If I, I'll let everybody know here if there's a change. I, uh, what I've been doing this summer so far, except for last week, he come on Friday, but we've been trying to go to mom's during the week, you know, when it didn't interfere with the weekend. Paul, do you think there's any um, passages in the Old Testament that deal with the destruction of Jerusalem specifically? Like the last chapter in Isaiah, for example, is that what it's talking about? I believe that uh, our, uh, Daniel, the ninth chapter, okay. okay, and then also Zechariah, 13, 14. Remember in Zechariah 13, it's quoted in the Gospels, they will, when they pierce the shepherd, the sheep will flee, uh, strike the shepherd, the sheep will flee, and then go on into the 14th chapter, and he has the nations gathered against Jerusalem and everything, and then he has the people of God coming out on top. But I believe in Zechariah there, uh, Daniel also. Now, to show that they understood it that way, we go back to their writings, you know, at that particular time. And the reason that they were in such a fervor pitch for the Messiah is because they did interpret that. And of course, they didn't, uh, when it got to the uh, abomination of desolation and everything of that nature, they really 
uh, limited that entirely to antagonist epiphanies and those things, and then the rebuilding of it. And then, uh, then as to what they perceive when it says, like, on the wing of that, you know, after the Messiah, uh, I really don't know. They, uh, they're, you know, because they would know the possibility of Jerusalem falling because it had failed before. But by the same token, they thought that when the Messiah came, that he would reign forever, you know, from within the city itself. So they were confused about that. Yeah, they, well, see, it's figurative. Well, remember, he had told Daniel to seal it up. It's many years in the future. And Daniel almost got sick trying, so, trying to understand it. So Daniel didn't have a full understanding until it actually unfolded. And when John writes this, uh, some of this is happening and about to happen, but most of this is about to happen. And they won't come to a full understanding of it. In other words, the, they would understand who the beast was and the force and everything like that. And they would understand that John was saying, you're going to come out victorious. But they wouldn't have a full understanding of every point until it actually unfolded. And it was something that was soon to come to pass, but it really hadn't come to pass at the time. So John himself, you know, we can only speculate as to uh, how much John himself fully understood. And then it all unfolded and it came to pass. Well, do you think that, that did, the, did any of the Jews ever realize that Christ was going to be a spiritual Messiah? I mean, in, like in the Old Testament, the prophets, or did any of them? I mean, Not a what one. about Isaiah? I mean, Not a one. Because some of that seems so. Not even the prophets? Uh, when you read in Isaiah about the suffering servant yeah. and everything, well, the Jew, in fact, the, the Jew at this time interprets that as a nation of Israel. The suffering servant is Israel. The world is going to be blessed for Israel. Israel has suffered and been beaten down and abused and everything. But in the final analysis, the, 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 earth, the nations of the earth will be blessed because of, of Israel. And when you sit down with a Jew with like a passage like Isaiah 53, what you point out to him is the, is the, the very personal nature of the individual that's being talked about, that it is definitely an individual that is uh, talked. In fact, you can go back to Jewish commentary on that before Jesus, and they understood that as the individual personal Messiah, okay, those, like in Isaiah 53. But then when Jesus came, and, and he, it was obvious that Christians made such... They would have had to have understood that if they were making that commentary right. They, they knew it pointed, they didn't understand all the details, they knew it pointed to a personal Messiah. But then those that rejected Jesus, and Christians see we're making big use of Isaiah 53, a good example is Ethiopian eunuch, reading from Isaiah 53. Well then, that they, went, they didn't want him, so they went back and re-examined their interpretation of Isaiah 53. And then they, in other words, the concept of of uh, this uh, person in Isaiah 53 being Israel as a nation. That didn't come about until after Jesus had been propagated and Christians were using that as an evidence and then they went back and reinterpreted Before that in their writings they had re recognized it as a personal Messiah. Well how do we know that how do we know that, that they had this, I mean there's, there's a few verses that hint at it but do we have secular back up that lets us know that, that the Jews were definitely um, expecting a yeah. physical rain. Uh -huh. All the, the reason is because 
You know, it's a girl at work, and she, you know, she's fairly well, well stated in general, but she disagreed with me on that, that the fact that the, she thought that the Jews knew that it was a spiritual Messiah coming, and that it was just a few people during that day. Is she a Christian? Oh, yeah. Mm. I don't know where she'd get that because. See, I was, I, I about, my mouth just dropped when she said it. I thought. I, mean, I don't know where she would get that uh, because. Uh, I thought everybody knew that. Alfred Edersheim, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, the standard in that area, page after page introducing, quoting all these Jewish sources showing that they believed that it was going to be a physical Messiah, a Jew, the son of David. Remember Jesus said to them, uh, uh, whose son would the Messiah be? They said, the son of David. And he said, well, if that's the case, then why did he say, the Lord said to my Lord, if, if, it's, if it's his son, why is David calling his Lord? And they said they couldn't answer him, and they walked away. See, they had the Messiah as only the son of David, and he was going to arise like David and be this great Messiah, and they would overthrow. In other words, bringing salvation to them was to overthrow their enemies. Uh, that, and, and he came to overthrow sin, but to them it was to overthrow the enemies. Well, in all of their writings, without exception, there is not one single solitary statement in any of their writings, going back to the Quadram Caves, you know, and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all, and all the material we have, that thought of the Messiah in any way other than the son of David, and he would be king like David. We had a, we had a usurper on the throne. Herod was an Edomite uh, of, of the descendants of Esau, and the Jews were looking.